Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yes, I am here, your Pratt Pack, but Doug is on the road, and we'll check in with him in just a matter of seconds. But let me just remind you, we would love to give you the opportunity right now to take home a $25 gift certificate from Sorgles out in Wexford if you're the 10th caller at 412-922-1020. The 10th caller wins it. Steve Rapasky will be here. Also, Doug's got some exciting stuff to tell you about and also fill you in on where he is, but also where he's going to Tuscany. But we're going to get started right now with everything from A to Z. Another edition of The Organic Gardener on the road this time. Here is the star of the show, Doug Oster. Doug, good morning. Good morning. Yes, I'm on the road. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, visiting my son after a trip to Baltimore to see the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show. I've got lots of information from the trade show that you'll be interested in. But later on uh, in the show, we are talking to Steve Rapaski from Bee Control and Meadowsweet Apiaries about this new vaccine for bees. It is the very first vaccine ever developed for insects uh, to deal with the disease. And we're also going to talk a lot with Steve about pollinators, too. Uh, like Rob said, uh, I've got a second trip to Tuscany in the works, and you could come along. There's still plenty of seats left. It's called my off-the-beaten-path Italy trip. I have waited a long time to <laughs> to present this. Uh, we are seeing some bigger cities, Florence and Pisa, but a lot of small hill towns and learning to cook Italian and all sorts of, of fun stuff. If, if you're interested in one of these trips, the nice thing about it is we have this thing called a tour manager that comes with us. And this is a local person that knows everything about everything, meets you at the airport and leaves you at the airport. Uh, all the information is at DougOster.com. Uh, if you'd like to come along and let's talk a little bit about mants. So that's the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show in Baltimore. I go every year and looking all for the, the new uh, introductions. And I was looking at my, steps yesterday because I was thinking, you know, I wonder how far I went. One day at that show at the Baltimore Convention Center, 6.5 miles. <laughs> I knew there was a reason I had a blister on the bottom of my foot, but saw some cool stuff. Um, I guess one of the, you know, they're always coming up with new hydrangeas and the, there's a series called Endless Summer. And there's a variety now, a new one called Pop Star. It blooms, all the endless summer bloom on new and old wood. But while I was at Nance, I did a lot of interviews for the radio show. I've, I've got lots of guests coming up in the next few weeks. 
when I talk to somebody specifically about hydrangeas, and this one they just released is called Pop Star, and it's a purple lace cap type, and she had the um, was able to grow it for two years before being released, and she was just over the moon with it as far as it's reblooming and how fast it reblooms. He said the problem with some of these reblooming hydrangeas is that, yes, they'll rebloom, but they'll rebloom too late in the season. This one, it blooms early and then sets blooms again. It's not a big hydrangea. That's the other thing I saw there was that uh, lots of talk about smaller things, smaller shrubs. We're seeing a lot of that as, uh, as a trend. Uh, another cool thing I saw there was uh, a new company – uh, and they're putting out what are called flawn seeds, F-L-A-W-N. That's a flowering lawn, and I love it. Uh, you get a big, giant thing of seeds. You cut your grass down as low as you can. You throw this in there, and it's got, like, all sorts of cool stuff, clover and all sorts of other things that will flower for you, but also, again, help pollinators and help the grass. You know, one interesting thing that happened while I was at that booth um, a guy started talking about the clover and how important clover was in growing in concert with, with grass. And he started telling me that all these stories, and I said, I said, you're preaching to the choir. Early on, and we've talked about this, you know, for years on the show, after World War II, when suburbia started to explode, when you got grass seed, you almost always had clover seed included in the grass seed. And the clover has a symbiotic relation with the grass. It takes nitrogen, splits it, and makes that nitrogen available for the grass. And so everyone was like, yeah, this will be great. The clover will help feed the grass. But then when Madison Avenue told us that, no, no, we don't want clover. We just want straight grass. People, you know, I get messages all the time from people saying, how do I get rid of my clover? How do I get rid of my clover? I said, you don't want to get rid of it. It's a good thing. And so just to see, uh, you know, someone coming out with seeds that you can throw onto your lawn. In fact, you can even do it. They, they've got some you can put them on. If your lawn is snow covered, you can put these seeds on and they will sprout in the spring. Another cool thing I saw, uh, it's called the Volking plant baskets. They're like little flexible, not only, not little, they could be bigger too, but flexible metal screening some are, are like in, in like a uh, like a basket where you would dig a hole, put that in, and then and plant something. You know, voles are, are vegetarians. They eat our potatoes, our beets, our carrots, uh, the roots of a lot of our plants. And so I found that really interesting. There, there were you know you could you could lay a a big uh, line of this uh, volking. Uh, wire mesh down, then put soil on top of them, plant potatoes or something like that. Uh, pretty interesting, I thought. And and over the next uh, couple of weeks, I'll have a lot of different information from Mance. Like I said, I interviewed tons of people. and We had a lot of fun talking. I'm really looking forward to the hydrangea uh, segment. I'm not sure when I'm going to run it, but uh, we talked for, for two segments all about, you know, why, does it, why don't hydrangeas bloom reliably and what are some 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 cultivars that we can use that this woman has has over the years they, if a if a plant
plant, a hydrangea plant for her doesn't do what it wants, what she wants it to do in three years. She just digs it up and donates it. And so she's always trying the latest uh, and the, the newer hydrangeas. And uh, I think that's going to be, I think you're going to like that. And I learned so much about the different varieties. That's probably kind of the confusion with hydrangeas. You know, you start going to Latin names. You start to go hydrangea macrophylla. That's the mop head. That's the most popular. Uh, then there's paniculata and there's serrata and all sorts of different types. And they all bloom a little bit differently. And that's a pretty cool thing. Now, in my garden before I left, I actually had something starting to bloom. <laughs> and they're a very special little bulb uh, called snowdrops, but a special cultivar that was given to me by a friend who has passed away. And we all know the power of these plants to, to keep people that we love alive. And so, you know, I was just running around the garden, walking the dog, and I saw these snowdrops, and they're a variety called wasp. And so two friends of mine, Len Lemon and... Um, Al Durbrook were both members of the Allegheny chapter of the North American Rock Garden Society. They have a really cool garden, a uh, little car- garden in the corner at the aviary. When we get to the spring, and you, if you have the north side, you should go check it out. Well, these two guys, <laughs> they would come whenever I'd be speaking uh, at a public event, they would come like all the time. And I was like, why are you guys coming? You're, you're, you know, a lot of these jokes are the same, and, and a lot of this information's the same. Well, anyway, they said, oh, we just like it, Doug. And and these guys were expert gardeners. I mean, they knew so much. They were just a wealth of information that they were willing to share freely. And that's why we got along so well. Unfortunately, both of them passed away within just like six months of each other. But before that happened, when they were there, I talked about snowdrops and my love of snowdrops and my obsession with snowdrops and how I'm looking for new varieties and growing them everywhere because it's the first thing to bloom, you know. <laughs> I know it's cold and crazy out there, but this is the start of the season when snowdrops bloom. And Len, you know, took the time to dig these little bulbs out of his garden, pack them up and send them to me, and I planted them right, like I said, in a special place right in the vegetable garden so I, I never could miss them. And so when they do bloom, I think of both those guys and what good friends they were and what great gardeners they were. But I also wonder, and you've heard me talk about this over the last couple of years, I wonder, you know, people will enjoy the flowers, but they won't know the special meaning of them when the next gardener comes to my garden. And I guess that's just part of gardening, you know, Um <laughs> uh, I know that they're very special, but no one else does. Uh, And I guess that's part of being a a gardener. Uh, When we come back from the break, I'm very excited to talk to our friend Steve Rapaski from Bee Control and Meadowsweet Apiaries about this new bee vaccine and what it means for gardeners and what it means for beekeepers. All right, Steve Rapaski on the other side. It is Doug on the road today, the organic gardener, and uh, he'll be with us also in the third segment. Then we're going to open up the phones in our final segment today. So stay where you're at. The organic gardener, Doug Oster, Rob Pratt, your Pratt Pack Sunday morning continues in moments on KDKA. Meadow Sweet Apiaries, Steve Rapaski joining Doug right now as we get back to the organic gardener. Doug. Yeah, well, welcoming our old friend Steve Rapaski, our bee expert from Bee Control and Meadowsweet Apiaries. And Steve, welcome to the show again. The first question is, 
tell me what you know about this vaccine for bees. I mean, I know it's brand new, but how long have you been hearing about this? Or was this a surprise to you last week when this was introduced? Yeah, good morning, guys. And yeah, it's uh, it, it came as a surprise to a lot of the industry. I mean, certainly we understand and, and know and expect that there's a lot of research going on. Um, we just don't know what's going to come out and when because you're familiar with research in any way there's trials and tribulations and until they get to that point where they feel comfortable um you know everything else is just uh smoke for right now right there's no fire and uh, this news came out about a week ago maybe a few days um ago and as a vaccine that actually has the potential to control and i won't use the word cure in any way but it has the ability to or potential to cure a disease that affects um, the European honeybees that we use here for honey production and pollination and things like that. Uh, the disease that we're focusing on is called American fowl brood, and it is a uh, very contagious bacterial spore-forming disease. Um, the good news is that it's not a very common disease. However, it's just very deadly. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, roughly 1% of all of our colonies uh, show up with American fowl brood um, through our inspections. And, and we have about, oh, probably 60 to 70,000 colonies here in, uh, I'm sorry, we have 60 to 70,000 beekeepers um, you know, probably be, I'd have to look at the numbers, uh, you know, several hundred thousand bee colonies. So 1% is a very small number. Uh, however, the fact that it's so contagious uh, from colony to colony through the transfer of um, honey being fed to other bees, bees robbing out honey from other colonies, um, beekeepers using old used equipment that they're not sure how the bees died from it, uh, it, it, it shows a, a promising path into the future if we can get this disease under control. What happens now if you get a hive that gets this disease? What what has what? How do you treat it or deal with it? Yeah. So for, first and foremost is the understanding of how you diagnose it. So we use our, utilize our state bee inspectors to come and confirm it. But there's certain things that we look at to confirm that the colony has the disease. So there's sunken cappings. Uh, the, the larvae die within the cell. They don't even um, emerge out as adults. The colony will slowly dwindle. You'll have this odor um, from the disease, which is why they call it foul brood. It has this real musty odor to it. Uh, but ultimately, there's um, there were two options prior to 2017. Uh, two options were one is to treat it with an antibiotic, which suppresses uh, the symptoms and suppresses disease. The stores can the um, the spores of the disease can be in the hive for upwards of 80 years. Um, they they don't go away. So the other option was if you don't want to use a uh, antibiotic to suppress the, those symptoms and allow the colony to survive. We would burn the colony, so we would, you know, utilize the, the honeybees and then burn all of the equipment, all of the wax, all of the frames. So it was a really huge loss to beekeepers that would get this disease. Fast forward to 2018, the FDA put in place regulations that prohibit beekeepers from using antibiotics without a prescription from a vet. And as you can imagine, there's not many vets that will do house calls for honeybee colonies, at least not yet. And, and they're slowly working on that. But uh, a lot of times now, most beekeepers will just euthanize the colony and burn the equipment just to be safe because you do not want to have that disease spread through your own operation, let alone your neighbor's operation. 
if this vaccine is effective, first off, how do you, how do they plan on getting it to the bees in the colony? How do you vaccinate, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of bees? Yeah, that's a great question. And the big the big word there is if it's effective. And and there's a lot of um, hesitation amongst beekeepers in the industry right now. And I've been watching some of our listservs and talking to commercial beekeepers and. Yeah, they're they're questioning it because we haven't really seen results. We're just told this is what's going to happen, but we haven't seen any real life results. But ultimately, how the actual the vaccine actually works is um, backing up a step. Bees, worker bees, feed the queen royal jelly as her food. So the way the vaccine works is the vaccine will be inoculated into royal jelly. The royal jelly is fed on by the workers. The workers then feed it to the queen. When the queen ingests this inoculated royal jelly, she's essentially, quote-unquote, vaccinated. Um, And vaccinated may not be the correct word, but that's the word we're using in the industry currently. Uh, So once this queen is vaccinated, that uh, vaccination is incorporated into her ovaries. So as she lays uh, her thousands of, of eggs a day, uh, and those workers emerge and hatch out as adults 21 days later. Those workers are now vaccinated, and the, the process just repeats itself. So it's a, it's a very simple um, mechanism of, of vaccinating these colonies, but there's a lot of questions that come up, like, you know, one, um, how effective is it uh, in the field? We know in the laboratory it reduces uh, the amount of disease by about 30 to 50 percent, so it's not... 100% effective, but it, it reduces the, the amount of disease. Uh, but then we have the question is what happens if that queen is superseded? So now you have to revaccinate the colony. So it, it's a very simple method through a feeding mechanism of royal jelly to the queen. Uh, now the question becomes how effective is it going to be and be sustainable throughout the colony itself? Has anybody talked about cost yet? Talked about what? The cost. What's, what's oh, the, the cost? cost? No. We have not heard any cost yet. And again, that's one of the things that we're seeing in the, in the, uh, it's all lab based right now, right? It hasn't really been truly field tested. Uh, so now the disease has been, or I'm sorry, the vaccine has been authorized uh, by uh, the FDA in, in the, in the U S um, now it's going to be made available to commercial beekeepers because they're the ones at most risk. Um, it's a you know risk-based type of application and then from there, they're talking, okay, are we going to have vaccinated queens for sale? And, and there's a lot of questions arise. So we're just seeing the surface of this vaccine come to, to fruition. Uh, we have yet to see true real-life field results, and we have no idea as far as you know, cost. The fact that it's inoculated into a royal jelly probably means it's not going to be highly um, expensive, but the question then becomes how effective or how easy is it going to be to inoculate royal jelly? Are we buying a a syringe full of royal jelly and, and putting it in a colony? I mean, that's the core part we don't know yet. There's a- All right, guys, listen, i got to get to a break. We'll come back. Much more with Doug and Steve on the other side. And, of course, Doug and I will take some phone calls in the final segment as well. This is your Sunday edition of Rob Pratt and the Organic Gardener with Doug Oster and Steve Rapaski. Back with more in a moment on KDKA. All right, so many good things happening at Janoski's in Clinton. Don't forget to get out there. They're open all winter long. You can find out more at Janoski's.com. And if you're the 10th caller right now at 412-922-1020, you may be taking home a $25 gift certificate to Janoski's in Clinton. Once again, let's get back to Doug Oster and Steve Rapaski. Doug? 
Yes, thank you again, my Steve Rapatsky from Bee Control at Meadowsweet Apiaries. He is our insect and bee and pollinator expert. And before we move on to pollinators, Steve, we talked about this new vaccine for honeybees. What's your gut feeling on this? Yeah, my, my gut feeling is a wait and see. Um, you know, as typical with most new things, you know, you just don't know what to expect. We haven't seen the field results, haven't seen the field data yet. We don't know pricing. Um, you know, it has its potential, um, and, but there, we've had a lot of things that have had potential in the beekeeping industry. Some have worked out. Some have just failed miserably. Uh, so we're hopeful. Uh, we appreciate the researchers out there doing their, doing what they need to do to, to protect the industry and protect these pollinators. Uh, but in the end, it's going to be a wait-and-see approach for us. It's probably going to be another three to five years before we might see anything of value that will come to the average backyard beekeeper. So from bees to butterflies, there is some good news out there, right? Yeah, I was I was actually just looking the other day at some of the things about native pollinators and whatnot, as you typically do in the winter, catching up from you know, all the fast speed stuff in the spring, uh, and found an article that actually shows that the monarch butterflies are up this year, or I guess it would have been from last year, uh, 2022. They haven't; they're still in the uh, down in Mexico on the hibernating grounds. Um, for this year, but you know, back in 2020, they were down you know 25, 30 percent, and now we're finding uh, that the there was a sharp increase in populations down there, um, upwards of 30 percent north of of what it was two years ago. So what they're saying now is um, we're seeing an increase in population, which is a hopeful sign. Uh, we're still below the extinction threshold, which obviously, as you've heard over and over again. Monarch butterflies have been in a sharp decline over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, um, but they're on their way up, which is a good thing. And we don't know why yet. I mean, you know, at typical population levels, there's ups and down, up and downs. But uh, I think that can be pointed to a lot in the habitat conservation. <laughs> I can't talk today. The habitat conservation that we've done, um, not only on national level. But even on the backyard level, you know, we, we've talked time and time and again when you and I have been on together about how crucial um, habitat is, whether it's for monarchs and planting um, milkweed or leaving your gardens intact and leaving those hollow stems up for the winter um, until early spring so that some of these native pollinators have somewhere to, to spend the winter and hibernate. So specifically for monarchs, is the main thing we're doing to help planting milkweed, or is there, there more that we can do to help them? I think from a backyard level, um, it, it's about planting, you know, milkweed, giving them food, giving them protection in that aspect. And I think also a lot of things uh, we have going for us, too, is we're doing a better job at tracking um, these, these butterflies. So there's a lot of these backyard scientist programs where you can become an official monarch tagging station. So you know, the monarchs are migrating through and, and you put this really lightweight number on their on their wing. And as they travel through, people report sightings. They get down to their wintering grounds in Mexico and, and the researchers there are, are tracking these numbers. So certainly there's a lot of things that we're doing. We're paying, paying more attention to them, uh, which, but that's typical of everything you know when we see something finally degrading to the point where it catches our attention it's almost too late and then we spike up our our conservation efforts 
um, but it's helped on other ones as well. So, you know, the diversity of flowering plants, plants that we plant, um, you know, that benefits the entire ecosystem ultimately is going to benefit these monarchs too. I mean, butterfly or any of these milkweeds that we plant for all species of butterflies, more specifically for monarchs, are going to benefit. So as a backyard uh, individual, whether you're a beekeeper or a gardener or somebody that's concerned, it's easy to plant uh, milkweeds. They're easy to grow, and, and it, you can do it in an out-of-way space without impacting the rest of your lawn. So before we move on to uh, native pollinators, let's go back to honeybees. Uh, we're still Honeybees are still struggling, right? Yeah, and, and it's, it's been the same struggle for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. You know, but we discovered colony collapse disorder back in, you know, the early 2000s. And, you know, that has typically gone away, but we still are focusing on, you know, pest um, pathogens, poor nutrition, and pesticide use. It's those four Ps that we continue to see. The good news is, we haven't seen the sharp decrease in honeybee populations like we did back with colony collapse disorder. The bad news is that we're not seeing the increase that we want to see. So we're, we're kind of status quo. We're not gaining ground. We're not losing ground, but we're learning more and more about those four Ps, the pest pathogens, poor nutrition, and, and um, pesticides, better awareness, better educational opportunities for the non-beekeeping public. Uh, and then general, that's helping the, the, beekeeping population remain where it is rather than us seeing these sharp declines. So native pollinators are not talked about as often as the European honeybee. But again, uh, what is the research showing us for native pollinators as far as their populations? It's the same dismal reports. You know, we're seeing the declines there as well. And uh, we're working on getting more and more education out there for the native pollinators. You know, we often hear the cry, save the bees, and uh, that doesn't apply. It doesn't, I won't say it doesn't apply. It's not solely save the honeybees. It's saving all bees, and beekeepers especially are doing a better job at getting the word out that when we say save the bees, we're talking about all bees, all of our natives, our European honeybees, our bumblebees. Um, but the unfortunate thing is those natives are suffering uh, decreasing populations, just like the monarchs, just like our, our European honeybees. And it goes back to the same type of thing, habitat degradation, right? We, we want these clean, green yards, and we're putting fertilizers down and, and herbicides, and we're getting rid of the diversity of, of food available. So uh, when we leave our gardens up for the winter and don't clean them up, um, um, or when we make sure that we don't mow that part of the yard for a certain time of the year, we're providing habitat for nesting, we're providing habitat for hibernation, we're providing food sources. Uh, and that's really what it comes down to with all of our insect populations. I mean, it, we've seen that decrease overall um, with every, every insect species. So when it comes to natives, we're seeing the decline in population. However, the education is becoming more and more prevalent um, to the general public to you know, when we say save the bees, we're talking about all all the, the uh, native pollinators. Yeah, and certainly, you know, when a show called The Organic Gardener, we're not going to, uh, you know, recommend any pesticides at, at all. That's the first thing, right. no pesticides. Habitat, but then is it helpful, we've got a couple minutes left, is it helpful to put up those, like, bee houses that they sell where it has all the different like holes and stuff and yes. I built a few and I've put them up in, in my garden. 
Yep, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is one of the best things, other than planting flowers and, and you know increasing your habitat diversity, providing habitat for nesting is crucial because we also remove that type of habitat. So those little bee houses, and, and I certainly recommend getting them from a reputable company. There's a number of reputable companies online that sell them. Um, you know, you see them at some of the big box stores. Eh, I try to stay away from those because they're just kind of universal and not really focus on even though it says native bee houses they're not as ideal as you if you were to buy them from a specialized um, type of a company but yeah placing those up uh in and around your property putting them in the right areas you know facing south facing east east so they get that morning and afternoon sun uh protected from the weather i love those little houses um i have a couple up in my in my yard um i have customers that i work with through bee control um, that I've encouraged to put those up, and, and they've come back three, four years later, and, and they're filled, and they see them every year, and they actually get excited every spring. When we come to do with every things we need to do with the bad stinging insects, they want to tell me about how their mason bee boxes have been populated, and they see them flying around. So those are fantastic. All right, great gifts, right. and they're great excuse. All right, Steve, we're out of time. That's Steve Rapatsky for Bee Control at Meadowsweet Apiaries. When we come back, we're taking your calls. 866-391-1020. If you have a call for Doug, we'd love to hear from you. Back with more of the Organic Gardener in just a couple of moments right here with your Prat Pack on a Sunday at KDKA. All right, Doug, back in the studio a week from today, but he is on the road. And I guess this would be a couple of things to wrap up in the few minutes that we have, Doug. Uh, sowing poppy seeds, draw a plan, and winter sowing. Three things you could be thinking about as we are in the midst of the winter season, months away before the spring gardening season that will be here before you know it. Doug? Oh, we need something to do during the winter. Before we get to those three things, the first thing that was on my mind was getting those tools in shape. Uh, you know, it's really important to have sharp tools. And so for years and years and years, and you could find uh, different types of tools at your local hardware store. I, I use this one called AccuSharp, and it's for things like shovels and hoes, uh, trowels, things like that. And it's just a little thing you hold in your hand that you can run across the business end of the tool that sharpens it up. Now, in the case of something we call a bypass pruner, that means where you've got the type of pruner that the blades go past each other when they cut. We use a different uh, tool, again, from the hardware store. And it's just a little itty-bitty file. And one side is coarse, the other side is fine. And we just look at that beveled edge of that a piece of metal and run the uh, file through there on the coarse side, then the fine side. The next thing for your tools, anything with a wooden handle, you know, I'm using tools that were my grandparents. And those, those old handles are made out of ash, which we, you know, have trouble finding now because of emerald ash borer. But put something called boiled linseed oil on the wooden handles. And I usually do a couple coats during the winter. Let it soak in for a while and put some more on, and that just makes them so supple, and they won't dry out, and they won't break when you're trying to uh, get that big, giant root out of the, the ground or, or cut something. Um, and then also for, for the, the shovels, the hose, and even your, your bypass pruners, just a little bit of a little coating of motor oil on the metal keeps it from rusting. Uh, another trick is in, in your garden shed or around uh, somewhere where, you, where it's not going to get rained, a bucket of sand, 
with some some of that motor oil in there. Every time you come in with your garden tools, you put it into that bucket, and the roughness of the sand put takes off anything that's on there. And then also you get that little coat of oil every every time you do that. That's a great thing to do for the winter. Now, sowing poppy seeds. Traditionally, poppy seeds are sown over snow. So if you have a bed that's ready, get some of those poppy seeds. Throw them out there as the snow melts. Uh, that gives water to those seeds, and hopefully you'll you'll get some poppies to sprout and, and go crazy. Planning, planning, planning. Uh, one of my favorite things to do for gardening is planning. Uh, right now I'm organizing my seeds, seeing what I want, but I'm also drawing uh, a little map of the vegetable garden, deciding what's going to go where. And I'm looking at last year's map, so I'm not growing stuff in the same place. I rotate clockwise. Uh, adding compost now, you know, when the ground is hard, uh, finding compost, well-aged manure, and adding that to the garden. That's a great thing to do. And then one of my other favorite things to do is called winter sowing. Not, not, not in the same way that we talked about sowing poppy seeds, but by just making these little pots out of uh, one-gallon milk jugs, those plastic ones, you just kind of cut them about three-quarters of the way around so you have kind of a top that you can open and has that little lid on there you can screw on but you drill holes in the bottom of that you fill it up with uh some really nice moist planting mix you plant your seeds i'm not talking tomatoes lettuce spinach peppers anything you want to you put in there you put that lid on there and you leave it outside with that top on there and as soon as things get warm those things will sprout all right Remember, organic gardeners, you make our world brighter and safer with each seed you sow and every garden you grow. All right, Doug, see you next week in the studio. Great job. Stay with us after Rob checks the news from cheeseburgers to mac and cheese and cheese on that pepperoni pizza. All the ways to enjoy cheese. Maybe some cheesecake, too. That's the Coons Cooking Hour with Frank Dentici and I. But first, a short break, and then Rob gets us caught up on all the news for this Sunday morning. It is KDKA 100.1 FM AM 1020. Good morning. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.